This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Richardip, the editor of VanityFair.com, joining you for the second time this week, uh, very excitingly. Um, I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we are gathered. We have uh, two major topics to discuss this week. Uh, the three of us are going to get into cats, cats now, cats forever, cats the spectacle. Uh, and then uh, later on, we're going to have a conversation between Joanna Robinson and Anthony Bresnikan, who hopefully you've been listening to on Still Watching Discussing the Mandalorian, uh, when they're going to discuss Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, um, because we're living in a cats and Star Wars world, and you have to choose your team. Uh, hopefully you'll listen to all of us. Uh, and I think you should note that Joanna and Anthony, I think, are going to get into mild spoilers for their Star Wars conversation, but nothing too crazy, but choose your own adventure there. Um, but guys, we have to discuss Cats. Uh, Richard, we said in this week's earlier episode that you had gone to the heavy side layer after seeing Cats. Thank mm. you for coming back to join us. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I popped my weather balloon or whatever the hell that was and <laughs> floated back down to earth. Um, yeah, I went to the world premiere in New York at Lincoln Center, uh, followed by a party at Tavern on the Green in Central Park. It was quite an event. Everyone was dolled up uh whole cast minus some of the older folks were, were there uh and so yeah it felt like a real had a real sense of occasion and then the movie started and the audience went <laughs> fucking silent <laughs> no no they they, they they cheered and clapped and everything they, they were with it but like and that's probably why there were critics invited so they could have a live audience to kind of react with um but it's really funny to be at something like that where it's a very sort of a sense of occasion in the air and then the movie plays and it's like oh my god <laughs> like what is this? <laughs> um, I mean, is, is it like that that scene in Lady Bird with uh, Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf, like watching them performing and, and like trying to go with it, and like for the sake of the kids on stage and being like, "What did you guys do?" Yeah, I mean, someone next to me, like maybe halfway through the film, just went, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> Only halfway through. Yeah, yeah. 
See, I was already I was already with a knowing crowd of like film blogger types who were very eager, annoyingly eager to kind of performatively um, laugh at the thing. Mm-hmm. So then I was I was trying desperately to formulate a contrarian defense because I really wanted to come in here and be like, you know what, Cats is better than you think, but it all sort of crumbled this morning as I as I thought through it all, and um, it's a shame because I actually weirdly, I mean I I. I discovered cats through my mother when I was like 10 years old and she went to see it in London and she brought back the cast album and I used to listen to it and we went to see it on Broadway. So I'm like as favorably disposed as a, you know, functioning human can be to the show. And I think it's really interesting that it's based on these, you know, T.S. Eliot, one of the great sort of high modernist poets of the 20th century, wrote these dopey poems for like his God kids. You know, and they're like way better than they have a right to be. Like the lyrics are, they're T.S. Eliot. They're brilliant. And then, it, you know, it was at a time when Andrew Lloyd Webber was still kind of doing like pretty interesting work. And there's obviously some incredibly powerful earworms uh, that helped turn this thing into a sort of unexpected zillion dollar franchise for many, many, I guess, decades on uh, yeah. the theater. But it just feels like Tom Hooper didn't really understand or capture the things that make it interesting and the things that would help a new generation kind of get into that and instead tried to do something similar to what he did, I think, effectively with Les Mis, which is just do like a straightforward adaptation, but just pump up some of the production values, you know, because it's the movies. And it's like, dude, this is not without any context or framing and just you, you can't just like add a B plot. Or, or like a like a I don't want to say be like bad, but like a they add sort of like an extra plot line and a new song, which is literally like an Oscar um, audition that you have to sit through, and and then it was just like it lived in the uncanny value for basically the whole the whole time, yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah, Mike, I was I was maybe in an opposite position to you where last night I was like, this movie is horrible. It's an abomination. No one ever should have made it. And then I haven't stopped thinking about it. And I like I don't know if that's to the movie's credit at all yeah. or just the show itself and kind of the power it's had for decades of being on Broadway kind of all over the world. Um, but it's it's weird and it's expensive and dumb. And like I wish that like they had made basically any other movie, but it's like stuck with me that I, like, I don't know, Richard, I, I think you were similarly in, like disposed as I was to like get rid of it. But I don't know if it has uh, haunted you in the same way. Well, first of all, Mike, if you have earworms, you should go to the vet. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think, I, Katie, I think I sort of had a similar kind of arc to you with the movie where, I don't know, I was thinking about it and like, and I, I think I was forced to think about it more because I, I had to write a review. Um, I, was, I was lucky to be able to write a review. Um, and... I it's the kind of thing where like yes there is cynicism I think mostly coming from Hooper in the studio but like I there's something about it that I'm like I kind of want to like it I kind of yeah. want to like f- support it you know yeah. it's such an earnest sort of thing and everyone's putting their all into it and so it's hard to like well, like you said, Mike, kind of performatively snicker at it. You know, that's yeah. kind of a tired reaction. I think my reaction is a lot more complicated. But I think that what you hit on, Mike, well, was is for me, the real problem is that the stage show, silly as it is, is beloved by millions of people, has been for 40 years, but nearly, and and requires a huge suspension of disbelief. Right. You're watching people in leotards and makeup dancing yeah. around and singing these goofy songs. 
And people, millions of people for 40 years have been willing to do that. And what the movie, what Hooper, you know, sort of assumes is, well, no, it has to be literal. It has to be CGI. They have to be shrunk down to weird, you know, the furniture has to be huge. It ha- you, no one, you, the audience can't be trusted to imagine them as cats. They have to see them as, well, something weirdly approaching cats. And I just feel like that's kind of like a betrayal of the the magic of the original show. There yes. is a way to film musicals that doesn't do that. And I think where it, where it gets most painful to me is stuff like just the simple things like the dancing. Yeah. Because what's fun mm-hmm. about dancing is you're watching a human do stuff that you could never do that feels like it shouldn't be possible and that yet they're doing it. But when they're doing it with CGI assistance, then you're just like, whatever. This is just like watching uh, animation, except yeah. there are more interesting yeah. things that animation can do than dance or have fur flow in the fucking wind or whatever <laughs> it is. Like, to where so it, almost to the point where I was, I was thinking like, is it too soon to reboot Cats? Because I actually, <laughs> yes. I, I want to do like a Birdman. I, I want to see it as like a Birdman, mm-hmm. like in the theater. I want to be backstage with the actors when they're like putting the weird cat suits on. I want like 1981, you know, Cats on Broadway or London production outfits. And and like and also like some understanding of who T. S. Eliot was and wh- where these fucking songs come from, mm-hmm. you know. And then I feel like there could be something really interesting. Uh, and you want to see the people like sweating and being in pain and wrapping up their like mm-hmm. limbs. I don't know. That to me would be like a the fucking black cool swan version. Cat. Of yeah, the black cats. swan cats. This is like. Um, I don't know what the heck this is. Because on the other hand, it's not like the new Lion King where they just like made a bunch of cats sing cats, you know? Like so it is it's somewhere in the middle of all this. It's like people dressed up kind of like the cats musical, but with CGI, so that you never really know. I, I, I feel like there's almost a theme this year, maybe this decade, of like uh just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you are liable to end up in the uncanny valley, which yeah. is where a lot. What of What you're saying, um, Mike, about the dancing, I think was the most heartbreaking thing for me because what I love about seeing live theater, especially, is you're watching, like you said, like people do this dancing that you could not imagine doing yourself, and you're watching it play out without, you know, in real time. It's right there in front of you. And great movie musicals can accomplish that too. And you see things like they have these two dancers. Uh, they called like, they perform as like lay twins. They're these real French twins who are these brothers who dance, uh, and they play these two cats. And you see them like occasionally in the background. And there's like a moment to watch them, and they're doing things that if you watch just a video of them as humans do it, you would be astonished. But when you're watching them in these CGI cat suits, you're like, okay, that's technology just making this happen. And that happens right. over and over again. Not just with the like technology not necessarily working. Like there's this weird thing with the feet that they never to- totally solve or it doesn't look like they're actually on the floor. Um, but just it, it makes you not admire the things that you're supposed to admire, which is like the music is good. The dancing is great. And that's that's the magic trick that the movie just doesn't have at all. And and that's what's kind of baffling about it to me about the Hooper of it all because you know when when I was at the premiere he came out on stage and introduced the cast and ta- spoke a little bit about you know kind of like you Mike like you know he's loved the show since he was a kid and 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 he and you know he he purports to really value it and it's like I don't see any of that value on screen. Once in a while when one of the songs when the movie just slows down and just plants on someone singing or a bunch of cats singing it's you're like okay i can feel the spirit of the show coming through but otherwise it's just like i'm just i'm I'm kind of sick of and i don't mean to put it all on cats because uh, plenty of other movies do this as you pointed out but like i'm just sick of like people taking something that people like and care about and just using it as the, the the sort of framework to do an experiment on, you know, like can we pull off a digital dancing cat? Let's take the, you know, it it, it just feels like it um, the the 
the tail is wagging the dog or something. It just it doesn't feel. Uh, <laughs> What's wrong, Richard? Cat's got your tongue. <laughs> oh right. Um, I don't know. No, I, I I agree with you. I mean, look, I think I feel like with Bombshell, I I respect the experiment, and I just think it didn't quite work. You know, for for me, um, with this one. I also kind of respect the experiment, but it feels cynical. It feels it feels that it ends up tipping toward can we make a billion dollars globally, you know, with cats as our intellectual property versus can we do something interesting with with cats, you know? And I'm yeah. sure it was both, but it felt like it tipped too far in in that direction and and lost there's some weird it's bizarre because cats became a cliche 39 years ago um, and like a cliche for bad commercial middle brow crap. But like there was something fucking risky and weird about the original cats that to me would be the thing that would be your job is to resurrect that and bring it yeah. forward because you, without it, then you don't have anything that is in, of interest. Like all those middle brow suburban people were coming to be like, what's this weird thing? Why mm -hmm. is everyone interested in it? Like it has to have it. So um, I don't know. It's peculiar. And then separately, there was just the, there were just simple things like Jennifer Hudson. I don't know how many takes she did, but but I don't think they should have used the take uh, where she's like weeping throughout the entirety of memory. Like like memory. I don't like I'm embarrassed to know this, but I'm pretty sure the whole point of memory is that it's kind of a stiff upper lip. It's a person it's an older person looking back on their life. I mean, she literally says, if you touch me, you'll know what happiness is. That does line doesn't really work if she's been bawling crying the entire time she's singing. So I, I just feel like there was also just sloppy stuff where mm -hmm. you're like, You gotta get this moment right, you know? There was yeah. a woman bawling crying behind me during it, so maybe I'm it was just Betty Buckley. An idiot. <laughs> remembering her. <laughs> salad days <laughs> yeah do we want to talk about some of the individual performances because as much of this movie kind of drove me insane like every now and then it comes to life because someone is on screen or because it's doing something yes. interesting like yes. Ian McKellen as like the most cat-like of all of them he has this like number as Gus the theater cat which just, it doesn't require him to dance and he just stands there and sing it and he sells it because he's Ian McKellen and he you know he succeeded as Gandalf 20 years ago he knows his way around CGI so there's all these weird moments like that where you're like hang on is there something to this that's working and then it goes back to being insane again. Rebel Wilson was good. Um, James uh, Corton was oddly not bad, I thought. And Judy Dench is when the material allows her to be retains a shred of dignity. I feel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the funny thing about Dench and 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 no no disrespect meant to the dame, but you know, people say, oh well, she does musicals. She played Sally Bowles in Cabaret, you know, in the seventies or sixties. Um, and it's like, well, right, but the thing about Sally Bowles as a character is she's not supposed to be able to sing that well. I mean, that's kind of why a lot of like actresses who can sing sort of get cast in that role that she's not a, a sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber singer, you know, right. and so it, that feels a little, little off to me. But I think, you know, I think for me, the most distracting one is Taylor Swift, who plays a character who they've kind of shifted from the stage show to the movie as, you know, she's not a sort of cohort of the villain McCavity in the stage show, but she is in this movie. She sings a song kind of introducing him. Um, it just feels like this weird discordant moment that is soon forgotten. Her character just kind of disappears from the movie. Um, and it just feels distracting. And it's like, if you, again, if you just focus on getting the show right and not all the bells and whistles, including kind of cameos like that, I think it would have been better. 
See, I liked Taylor. I felt like Taylor Swift had the vibe of the movie correct, like this like campiness and like you know willingness to perform for the camera and lean into it. Uh, and like her character doesn't make any sense uh, in the narrative, obviously. But there was there's something about the energy she brought where I was like, okay, I feel like she understands what the project is here. Whereas like Jennifer Hudson felt a little totally weird. Like Jason Derulo, it felt like he was kind of giving what he could to the Rum Tum Tugger, but the movie wasn't like following with him. Um, it's like the t- it's not like the tone is like super serious and super comic, although it does both. But it didn't feel like I knew I didn't feel like I was being guided into this world it was just kind of jumping from person to person yeah I I think the sound design was not helping people like Jason Derulo too you couldn't really hear his voice properly I'm glad it wasn't just me I was wondering if I had a bad uh, theater but it did feel like the sound design was bad which again get that right yeah like come on (laughs) like focus on the basics you know I think you know I think that this is another example and many many other filmmakers have dashed themselves on these same rocks not everyone can be James Cameron. And Avatar was like yeah. a decade-long, extraordinarily expensive thing that by the skin of its teeth was was pulled off, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, yeah. you can't do that with, you know, a tenth of the kind of technical acumen or expertise, or whatever. And, and, you know, and I just I just feel like that that job alone is so much work. Right. That and to, every actor yeah. alive. Yeah. And, and you you know, presumably Taylor Swift's only in one number because she probably was like, you get three days or right. whatever it exactly. is, right? Yeah. And and yeah. there's a, there seems to be a bit of that going on. And they're, they're probably like, that's fine, we'll just stitch you in, you know, and then you don't have a thing. You don't have a, yeah. a, 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 a there's no heart to the, to the... Exactly. It's all just floating in no, nowhere, right. you know. But I was grateful for when the actors showed up because they have these dancers in these lead roles, including uh, Francesca Hayward, who's like the white cat who's an incredible ballet dancer, but not an actor, and then a couple of other ones surrounding her. So then you get these people who are like trying to emote through the CGI and the makeup, and it's like they're not characters who can lead a story. Uh, and they're beautiful dancers, which is what's important on stage, but it doesn't give you anything. So that when like Ian McKellen or um, Judy Dench or um, even Jennifer Hudson in part show up, you're like, oh, there's a person there. Like I can grab onto yes. this. And then you lose it again. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, at least Jennifer Hudson. I I, I don't want to dunk on Jennifer Hudson. Like she has presence. She's a great actress. But you, again, you just felt like the equation was as simple as remember when Jennifer Hudson stopped the show with Dreamgirls? We should have her yeah. stop our show. And then the and then the thought like ended, and they didn't think even through like what is this number? What does it mean? Yeah. You know, like yeah. she comes in and and takes you know, takes over the show in a way, the plot of the show, that that number has to really function emotionally. And if it doesn't, then it's a problem, you know? So do you guys think this qualifies as so bad it's good and it's going to become some kind of crazy cult hit or is it uh, everyone's just going to turn away from it in embarrassment? I'm so curious. I don't yeah. know. I, I, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm just too sensitive or whatever, but I, I found it kind of more depressing than, than, than fun, you know? I think it also didn't help that I saw it you know, at night, and then the next morning, I saw the third Star Wars, which I really didn't like, and I just felt kind of like bummed out about like the state of like storytelling yeah, in like big studio movies. Bludgeoned. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I, I'm. I'm. A, I, Katie, I, I. I agree with you that like I have been thinking about it, and I hope to revisit it. You know, maybe in the new year when I have like sort of you know my brain's a little bit scrubbed and I can sort of try to just enjoy it on a more pure level. Um. 
But I don't know. I found myself with friends, you know, after the premiere talking about the box office. And some people were like, well, look, there's what else are people going to take their kids to see over Christmas? They've already seen Frozen 2. Star Wars is probably too old for, you know, anyone below 10 or maybe or whatever. Um, and so that's your option. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm, maybe that will make it mean it does well. But I just feel like word of mouth is not going to be great for that movie. Yeah, there's also Spies in Disguise, the pigeon movie. Don't uh, of course, it. right. Yeah, I just, I honestly could see it flopping and I could see it making like a billion dollars around the world. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, The Greatest Showman wasn't that long ago. And that's a movie that I think we all would have seen and been like, this is pretty goofy and weird. And then it made, I don't know if it made literally a billion dollars, but it made a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if there's that audience there that's just going to come running for it. I mean, once the. It does improve once you sort of settle in mm-hmm. after the first 15 minutes, maybe, of, of kind of adjusting to what, what you're seeing, you know, by the, by the late middle. And the songs, I mean, I do think the songs are like either like them or you don't. I actually like a lot of the songs. Um, some of them are, are not that great, but, but there's enough to keep you rolling. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's not painful. It wasn't painful. It didn't feel long. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Richard, did you get used to the digital fur technology? Because I, I would and then I wouldn't. And then things happen like Idris Elba's McCavity like removes his clothes for a dance number. And yeah. it's so strange that you're like all <laughs> of a sudden back in the beginning. perverse. Well, you know, no. there's no real logic it felt like about watching what, a person dance naked. It was yeah. so weird. And there's, there's no logic about who's what, which cat gets clothes and which ones don't. I also think with the with the digital fur technology and just the CGI, what mocap, whatever the hell it is, in general, it's weirdly like so much different per, for each character. Like like some yeah. of it looks terrible and some of it looks like better. And I don't know. It's just like a yeah. weird. Again, okay, I'm gonna go there because people have been talking about it being like way too horny or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I was 11 or something when I saw Cats on Broadway. It was very erotic. Yeah. No, it has that sort of There's quality. like a bunch yeah. of, you know, like gorgeous dancers in like skin tight, you know, leotard costumes crawling around, sometimes crawling like practically on your seat. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. exciting. And but like if you if you digitally remove everyone's genitals <laughs> and put them in CGI fur, it's fucking weird. Yeah, like when Rebel Wilson shows up and she's like rolling around and spreading her legs, you're like, I'm like yeah. are you trying to make me think about like right. <laughs> genitals? It's so weird. I mean I, I think the lesson is ultimately that a human being is closer in reality to a cat <laughs> than a cat is to some digital monstrosity <laughs> made by computers. I'd much rather see people who are also mammals yeah. pretending to be cats <laughs> than some computer engineer's idea of what those two things fuse together is. I don't right? know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, because oh, it should be kind of sexy, you know, but yeah, it's not yeah. because it's like, I don't know, someone went crazy with the airbrush. A friend of mine years ago, she she's, she was a costume designer. She worked on a st- summer stock production of Cats, and they were all sleeping with each other because they were all horned up all <laughs> yeah. the time. Of course they yeah. were. They're all nuzzling yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that we talk about the weirdness of it, it makes me like Cats more again. Like, the way that it just makes you ask all these questions because it, it is boring in parts, but then you start thinking about all this weirdness. I don't know if that's what they intended, but it does have this like special deranged object quality to it. Katie, I think you need to get checked for your worms. <laughs> <laughs> they got me. The skimble shanks got me. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new translation of the Iliad that's coming out. Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again. Whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, now let's pivot from cats to Star Wars. Uh, as Richard mentioned, he reviewed Rise of Skywalker, so you can read uh, Richard's thoughts on it there. Um, sorry, Richard, that it was uh, two C-3PO thumbs down for you. Yeah. Um, but let's hear Joanna and Anthony talk about Rise of Skywalker in more detail. Hello and welcome to, I don't know what, like the nerd corner of Little Gold Men. It is me, Joanna Robinson, and I am here with Anthony Presnikin, and we're going to talk about The Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> this, uh, this episode of Little Gold Men, obviously, is dropping on Thursday morning, so we are not going to like go ahead and spoil a movie that is not out for the general audience yet, but we are going to, we're going to try to like sort of thread the needle, walk the line. Um, talk- <laughs> Johnny Cash style. Yeah, Johnny <laughs> we Cash walk the style. Line. We're going to walk the line, thread the needle, and whatever other colorful metaphor you want to come up with uh, to try to be able to talk about it a little bit more substantially without spoiling it for you. So if you if you don't want to know anything about The Rise of Skywalker, you might want to save this section until after you see the movie. Um, but if, you know, if you're fine with some, like, general conversation about a film you haven't seen yet, stick around. We got some thoughts. Um, first and foremost, we should say that Anthony and I... Uh, have do not have the same share the same opinion on this movie. No, we um, don't. We do not, and that's I, I think that's great. I think that's fun. So what it, I will put on a little spectrum for you. If you've read your friend and mine uh, Richard Lawson's review on VanityFair.com, that is the extreme end of scathing. So if you want to know Richard's opinion, Richard really did not like this movie, and he wrote a very feisty review about it. Did you hate up. it as much as he did? Would you no, say you're so, uh, on so that I'm end? saying on the spectrum, I'm like, you know, a few steps back towards the middle is me. Because, uh, you know, like, what, like I, I agree with a lot of what Richard said, but then he would say stuff like Adam Driver felt checked out to him. That that was not my take on Adam Driver's performance. I, I think a lot of the performances in this movie are incredible. So whatever issues I have with, like, plot and pacing and coherence and stuff like that, um, a lot the performances almost across the board work for me. So I put myself, like, a you know, a little bit more towards the middle of that. And then you, what I, I will just relate what I saw, which is the lights come up where walking out and I turned to look at you and you sort of just put your hand on your heart and it just like it got you. It really got you. So you love this movie. So like let's well, talk well, about The Rise of Skywalker. Or or did I mischaracterize your your feelings? I really enjoyed it. I was moved by it. The final scene which we're not going to discuss. No. Uh, and a lot and a couple of other sequences in there. 
Uh, I really liked it. And I'm not trying to walk it back or anything, but I recognize that there are flaws in the movie, too. And there sure. are things that I didn't like. Uh, and I would argue that every Star Wars movie has janky, weird qualities to it that don't work, but that you just kind of roll with. So I am not by any means uh, going to die on this hill. <laughs> and like, But I, I recognize some of the... the I recognize why people don't like the story. I share the sense about some of the things that make you unhappy, like make people unhappy with it. And uh, but overall, I thought it was satisfying. Well, and I think it's good. It's great to have your voice and other people who share your opinion out there because there's certainly like plenty of voices out there who are talking about all the flaws that they found in the Rise of Skywalker. Richards is far from the only scathing review. Um, it's, oh, it's, it's not doing great on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's, is it below fifty percent at this point? It was like at fifty four when I looked. A I saw early. it at fifty three. Yeah, so it's hovering around that that area right there. But it is, I think, it's the first Rotten. Like, because I was talking to um, a friend of mine who works at Rotten Tomatoes who we saw at the premiere and she was telling me i asked her where solo was and she said it was fresh but only barely and that mm. was the worst reviewed star wars movie that was on rod tomato so this worse is worse than the prequels I think so, but, but I mean, like Rotten, the way that Rotten Tomatoes works, you know, like the prequels were came out in a different time for okay. like film film criticism. Uh, right? She's talking of the modern era, yeah, of the last, yeah, of the new cycle of movies. Okay, so you know, if Rotten Tomato scores are something you invest in, which I have sometimes railed against that in the past because I kind of feel like you should find critical voices that you agree with rather rather than just following at an aggregated score. But it is something that like studios look at. It's something that they care about, the Rotten Tomato score. So this is definitely like a thing that they're going to be feeling this Wednesday morning as we're recording this, that this this is the first rotten score for the Star Wars saga, or at least the modern Star Wars films. So, you know. And 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 but we should say that's the critical score, right? And um, critical score for The Last Jedi ended up being like 97% positive. So yeah. that was pretty extraordinary. Okay, so the only other the only other Star Wars I just looked, the only other Star Wars on Rotten Tomato that has, and, and I'm not going to count the Clone Wars movie that came out in 2008. That has like an 18% for some reason. But The Phantom Menace has a 53%. But Attack mm. of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are, are, are rated fresh. So... <laughs> There you go. Uh, so, yeah. So this is getting uh, pasted by critics. Fans may love it. And you and I talked about this at the premiere. You don't really like this uh, putting people into camps like either you like The Last Jedi or you like The, the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, I but like I both. Like, that's the thing is mm -hmm. I felt like I felt they worked together. And that's probably a tweet that's going to come back to haunt me at some point. But, <laughs> um, but I did. I felt like the contrast worked. Mm -hmm. it, they are different, and I do think there is rivalry between Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams. I don't think it's a diss track. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it undoes The Last Jedi in any way, uh, in some ways. No, I mean, yeah. See, that's the thing is, like, I, I hesitate to, to, to speak in absolutes. It does. It neglects one important thing, which uh, I don't know how we want to get into that. But like, basically, the idea that anybody can be a Jedi. This is squarely focused on Skywalkers, and so yeah. um, this is this is definitely like 
Uh, and not just Skywalkers, but people who are connected. Like, this, like, family exception- relations. exceptionalism, mm-hmm. right, is sort of a thing. Whereas uh, The Last Jedi was really focused on, like, democratizing the Force. Yeah, there's no like, broom boy. We don't pick up his no story. Yeah, it's not a uh, thing. So, like, uh, here's, here's my galaxy brain take on it. Um, I think it's tough to have a trilogy where one filmmaker put his stamp on the first film, hands it off to a second filmmaker, and then it goes back to that first filmmaker. Um, and, you know, it, that first filmmaker, J.J. Abrams, being J.J. Abrams, who did The Force Awakens, which I really liked, um, and did this movie, and then Ryan Johnson does The Last Jedi in the middle. J.J. Abrams has some idea. He, he has been very clear that he didn't know exactly where he wanted the story to go after his first movie, but he has some idea of what he feels like he's setting up. But he hands the movie, the next movie over to Ryan, and so Ryan's like, I see the foundation that you've laid here. Here's the house that I think should be built on top of that. But then you get back to JJ, and he's like, no, that's not the house I wanted to build. I wanted to build this other house. And so then you get his, like, so then you get the this odd... Then you get, then you get rickety, the Winchester mint- yeah, mystery house. Exactly. You get this odd, like, rickety <laughs> structure where JJ's like well I'm just going to build the house that I meant to build on top of your house and then it just feels all out of balance to use a sort of force language around it that's how I feel it's just sort of like it's an unfortunate and I don't think it's a malicious uh, but I think it's an unfortunate wrestling match between two ideas of how to tell this story and I almost think like it's not that I was clamoring necessarily for a Colin Trevorrow episode 9 but I almost think if, if Ryan had handed the story then off to a third filmmaker, that would have been less of a tug of war than what this is. You know what I mean? Because there would have been less desire to close the circle with the first of the three movies. And I think it just would have been more of a a straight progression. Yeah. I agree with everything you said there. Like, so I guess (laughs) the difference is like, did you, the question then becomes like, did you enjoy your time in that rickety house? You know, in that in that house with the stairs that go nowhere and rooms <laughs> that have crazy doors and the ceiling and things like that. And um, and I did, and I don't want to feel bad about that. I don't. I I'm feel not, bad I'm about. Not he- I'm not feel, here to make you feel bad about that. I didn't mean that to sound scolding. Like, Stop making me feel bad. I, I will say that I enjoyed certain rooms in that house. That's the that's you know to just further belabor yeah. a metaphor, right? Like, um, and it's the same with the Winchester Mystery House. I don't know if you've actually been in that house. I have that, been. Yeah, uh, it's a very creepy place. But occasionally you find you walk into a room and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. a glorious room, you know. Um, so, like I said, I think the performances from Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver, especially, um, are incredible. Um, I also think I think this is John Boyega's best performance of the three yeah, as well. I think so too. I think he really shows up for this one. And I really, I you know, I, there's some new elements I quite liked. Like I liked uh, Carrie Russell as Zori Bliss. And I liked uh, uh, this little critter, Babu Frick. But, oh, so did Richard, for the record. Babu Frick is like he kind has of called him his new popular. boyfriend. <laughs> uh, voiced by Shirley Anderson. So um, didn't he, am, I, am I right? He tweeted like, "This is and my new boyfriend, Babu." Babu yeah. Frick. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, man. Which just goes to show everybody has their thing, I guess. So everybody yeah, has something. Some everybody likes a different room of the uh, of the uh, Winchester Mystery Star Wars house. Yeah, but like. The best description that I can see of, I would say, the first two thirds or maybe even three fourths of this movie 
is, I think Richard used this term, but I've seen a bunch of other people use it, which is this idea of like fetch quests, which is a video game thing, which is like you've got your characters zipping all over the place after various items and artifacts and things um, in, a, in a way that just feels really frenetic to me. Um, and, and Star Wars should feel like adventurous and propulsive and, and joyful. But like this felt like just too many locations, too many objects, too many just like zigging and zagging in order to get to um, an ending that I think is ultimately emotionally incredibly satisfying to me. Do you know? Yeah. Again, I agree with that. I think my biggest problem with the new film structurally is probably the opening 30 minutes. Again, not, there are things in that that I really like. Imagery and moments. It felt a little bit like a, like the recap that runs at the beginning of a new episode of TV, like on the last episode of... Uh, <laughs> previously, that, on previ- previously on... Previously on Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and in some ways, maybe you could say that fetch quest you described maybe that's like well that's what jj would have done with episode his second episode or his second uh his second film and the retrieving of these things and therefore he had to kind of like summarize it like like it, it opens with the retrieval of an artifact and it's done so quickly just because retrieving the art- artifact has to get him somewhere has to get kylo ren somewhere uh and getting there is the point it is a it is rushed, and that's true. Um, but like I, it's rushed and long. <laughs> like what, that's that's just nuts to me. You know what I mean? It's well, it go, it just goes to a lot of places. Like it does, yeah. it packs it in a lot of the a lot of these destinations, and um, but to me that's I don't know that doesn't feel like a cardinal sin you know what i mean i mean i'm going catholic here but like isn't like a major sin like a like a okay we um it's rushed i wish it would slow down then i feel like it does a little bit and i um but i still kind of enjoyed seeing those worlds and 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 seeing those objects so i kind of went with it you know the same way i went with it in Return of the Jedi, when Luke's plan to rescue Han doesn't make any sense, <laughs> so I just was on the on the ride, and yeah. so I guess I, you know, uh, I, I was able to enjoy that experience, even though I do feel like it was hasty. Like I don't, I don't want to like create a villain for this movie. Like I don't think J.J. Abrams is the villain. I don't think Lucasfilm was the villain. I don't think I think everyone was trying to make their best movie. That being said, like you know, the screenwriter on this film is Chris Terrio, who also wrote Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League, um, and Argo has an Oscar for Argo. We should say, Mm -hmm. Um, but he's he's wrote those two comic book movies, which are comic book movies that I also find very like disjointed and frenetic, yet also sometimes turgid. And that that's not you can't pin that just on any one writer you know that's that's directing that's editing that's all kinds of things but like chris terrio his name made me nervous in the first place when he was attached to this project and so i like i just i I can't help but see a connection between those two dc movies that i did not enjoy and this star wars movie that i did not enjoy yeah that's fair yeah i get it let us talk about. Um, well, let's well, talk about. Let's talk yeah. about the push and pull between JJ and Ryan. Right? Let's do it. 
it bothers me, I think because I know both of them, to see it like turn into a clash between them. Like, like, and I do think there's rivalry. Like, I believe directors, just like journalists, are rivals. And um, I think, uh, you know, I'll just use a personal example. Like, when I left the Oscar beat at a previous place that I worked and another writer picked it up, like, that person said, well, this year it's going to be better and different, you know. And, like, I overheard that being said to somebody, and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Not so, not so better, in my opinion, you know. And then when I got to do it again, it was like, well, it's going to be better this time. You know what I mean? Like, I think, like, people naturally feel like yeah, sure. their effort. You have to believe in yourself. If you don't, no one else will, you know. Um, so I do believe there's kind of a little bit of rivalry there. But uh, I want to quote somebody uh, named Franklin Leonard. He's the, the founder of The Blacklist, the, the screenwriting collective. And he tweeted something today that I just I just agree with a thousand percent. And he said, Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams are two of the best people I've met in two decades in Hollywood. Brilliant, kind, inclusive, low key. Um, you all have better things to do than to pit them against each other. And I do think there's competitiveness between them. I do. I also think that The Last Jedi is a bigger reversal of The Force Awakens than The Last and the rise of Skywalker is a reversal of The Last Jedi. So I feel like, okay, if you don't like that J.J. is changing direction on some of the story points that were laid out in The Last Jedi, then how do you feel about Ryan doing that to J.J., who set up a number of little mysteries and tropes and had them literally smashed to pieces in the case of Kylo Ren's mask by Ryan Johnson, you know, take off that stupid thing. Like, and, you know, moving the scar on Kylo Ren's face. Just There was a lot, like, Ryan, uh, who I adore, is, uh, you know, very boldly basically said, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not doing that with his movie. And so if you're willing to accept that volley between filmmakers uh, in that case, I think you kind of have to accept that and not demonize J.J. for making his own film or or following his own idea for where the story should go. You know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily demonizing J.J. because I don't think that um, I also like I've met J.J. I think he's a very nice person, mm -hmm. a genuinely nice person. Um, I think it's not I don't know. Disingenuous is a little strong, but I think you can't make that argument without looking at the different circumstances of the property they're inheriting, right? Ryan inherits The Force Awakens from J.J., which was very warmly received. Some people mm -hmm. critiqued it for, like... Too being, similar. Yeah, yeah, too similar to A New Hope and stuff like that. So Ryan inherits that, and he, he like... He, so he's taking something that's well regarded. He's like, okay, that's interesting, but like, I, I as a director want to see more of Adam Driver's face. So I would prefer to do not like the mask is stupid, but like, hey, I got Adam Driver's face and it's a tool that I want to use. So mm -hmm. I'm going to use it, sort of thing. But what JJ inherits is Ryan has been just like lamb busted and bullied by a fandom and and the, sure. unfortunately the way in which mm -hmm. jj course corrects back to i guess maybe more what he wanted to do happens to mirror a lot of the complaints that some people in the fandom had um in terms of what ryan did 
And I don't know if it's fair to say that like JJ was taking his directions from fans, but the fact that those things align, the optics on that are are, are much harsher than what Ryan did with The Last Jedi. Absolutely, because I think you're talking about like the racist and misogynist element of the fandom that didn't like Rose Tico, didn't like the idea of Rey being a Jedi at all. Like they didn't like that from the Rise of Skywalker either, to be fair, or uh, from The Force Awakens, I mean. Um, and I think the thing that bothered me the most was just the the jettisoning of uh, of, Rose. of Rose Tico. Yeah. Uh, as, you know, she's in the movie, but she's fulfilling Barely. the role of, like, a background extra, essentially. So, yeah. who, okay, like, you know, like what we in our house sometimes joke uh you, you see an actor get like one or two lines <laughs> in a show or something. And you're like, oh, SAG card. Like that person got their SAG card for that. <laughs> yeah. Like she's in a kind of SAG card role where we need somebody to say two or three things here and that's it. And doesn't really get any drama. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. It doesn't feel brave to me to sideline Rose in that way. No. It feels like you're capitulating to the worst, like percentages of the fandom especially when you introduce like they introduce this other character who also happens to be you know a woman of color Jana played by Naomi Aki and she's good but it's just sort of like it almost feels to me like okay you can't accuse us of of like you can't get mad at us for jettisoning this woman of color because we've introduced another woman of color it's not that but we know you don't like that other one so we've moved her off but we've got a different one for Finn to interact with and I'm just sort of like it feels like really cynical to do that to me and like i um i just like that sort of thing really leaves a sour taste and and i think what would have been braver yeah i know you do and i think i respect that Mm -hmm. yeah and i think what would have been braver is just to like double down on rose or not you know not make her like the central point of the of the of the film because she wasn't the central point of the last jedi but like don't jettison her. That's that's really cowardly, I think. So, uh, but yeah. I, I, well, here I will disagree with you a little more. I think she was like not maybe like the lead character, but like the heart of the Last Jedi. She has, I think, the most beautiful line in any Star Wars movie about uh, that's how we're going to win, not by fighting what we hate, but protecting what we love. Like I think that's a wonderful sentiment. There's, and like, there's yeah, there, without getting specific, there's a moment in the Rise of Skywalker where. In The Last Jedi, Rose tries to stop Finn from doing something. In The Rise of Skywalker, he basically does that thing and she just leaves. You know what I mean? It's just, it feels. Rose leaves? Yeah, and it feels so intentional. I don't know. I like, I. We're going to have to talk about that one. I'm not sure what yeah. you're referring to. So we might have to talk about that one off the, off the podcast. And uh, I like what JJ does with the force in this. I think he pushes the force to new levels, new uh, an expansion of what we see its ability in the hands of individuals could be, you know, it's hard because the things that I, that I loved about the rise of Skywalker are such deep spoilers that, (laughs) that you can't express them. And I also think that's going to, that's going to weigh on the discourse around this movie too, because you're, you're not constrained in that way in talking about 
the things that you dislike by saying like I don't like I don't like that Rose was sidelined and uh, I think that character was cool and interesting and had some had more to do or could have had more to do uh, the things that, that are re- really deserving of criticism about this movie uh, are, are free to be discussed. And the things that I think that are, are wonderful and beautiful and magical about it uh, can't be discussed because it will ruin it for people, <laughs> you know? Well, I so, mean, like, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that's, that knowing the plot of something doesn't ruin it for you. Like, there's plenty of things that I've known the plot of and it hasn't It takes away the you, surprise, so, like, though, for yeah, t- but, people like, who are buying tickets and don't want to well, learn I, the I story want, through us. I don't want anyone to, like get information that they don't want. You know what I mean? Like if you don't want to know anything going into star Wars, you should be able to have that experience. But I also think that like it, I don't believe that surprise should be the only, the strongest thing about your story. No, but, you know but what before, I mean? But, but as the, you know, in the first opening weekend, like there are a lot of people who aren't going to, who want to see it and want that surprise and won't yeah, be. And so they right. don't want to read about it in a tweet. So like, you can't really talk about like, Oh, this sequence, and that's, that's really moved me. That's, you know, that's also that's Disney down too. Like Disney has been so draconian about like the uh, ways in which we can write about true. this film or a lot of their properties. That all the reviews I read, including you know Richard at least like lampshaded it, but like all of the reviews I read and I read several this morning cannot don't like cannot talk about the plot at all. And that's unusual yeah. for a review. And and so then, you know, they're just like left saying like, it's got to trust me, it's not good, uh, you know, and they can't really even articulate why. And that's, you know, that's something that Disney has decided that they want it, but it might like, it might work against them in this instance, or it might not. I mean, this, this film is still probably going to make up a billion dollars, but um, the... Um, but, but one of the things yeah. people are saying, like in terms of reversals of The Last Jedi mm-hmm. is like, uh, we could talk about like Luke's attitude, let's say. Yes. And I would argue that I don't think the I think there's definitely like a little bit of an elbow that's thrown in one sequence. Uh and you might call foul on that if if you don't like it. I it, I didn't love that part. Um a particular line, but the idea that Luke was rejecting the Jedi and was embittered instead of a, a badass older space ninja like <laughs> who was ready to fight that the Mark good fight. wanted yeah. yeah like uh i love that luke was broken in the last jedi and had a journey to go on and i love that he throws his family lightsaber away that worked for me because frankly uh you know my wife works as an animation archivist and she talks about like the artists who have created classic animation, like things that are 20, 30 years old that people love, and they come back to reference some of their work. Like the archivists are using white gloves and they're in temperature-controlled rooms like to protect these pages. And the artists are like licking their thumbs and like turning the pages and crinkling things. And and she's always like, it always causes a lot of angst among the, the preservationists. But to them, it's their work product. Like you and I would handle a notebook or something. You know, like to them, it's not, sacred and i thought luke skywalker tossing the lightsaber like to him that was a tool and that was an object that harbors a lot of bad memories for him yeah he was rejecting it but and this doesn't spoil anything in the rise of skywalker by the end of the last jedi luke is a different guy he's changed and so i don't think a movie that presents the uh you know 
a person as they were at the end. Like, I think it's, I don't think that's a reversal. You know what I mean? Like, that's why when I tweeted that I thought the two movies actually fit together well, not because they're in sync and match perfectly, but because there is a contrast there and a bit of a bit of a push and a pull narratively. And so uh, I like that. That's- but but that's a room I liked. Mm-hmm. I liked the Luke room, mm-hmm. uh, except for like that one painting that you're mm-hmm. describing. Yeah, that one, that one elbow, <laughs> this that couch, was this one yeah. couch, like that it, can and, go. It, and I think it was done for a joke, and I don't think it was. And it was done. I think it was done as a way of like it, it broke the fourth wall for me. Like let's talk directly to the audience. Who yeah, didn't but like, like that but that's the kind of stuff that I'm just like you don't need it. I, do, I and agree, I, and, I, and I agree with you that like this feels like the Luke we left it because the Luke makes a huge journey at the very end of the Last Jedi, and you don't get to see him talk about it. Nope. He does it through his. He actions. does it alone. Yeah, yeah. And he does and it alone. So, uh, that Luke we see at the Last Jedi, who is at peace as the twins, like as the twin sunset or whatever, um, and vanishes. Like that's the Luke we see in this and that. Yeah, yeah, that works for me. Absolutely, the Luke stuff works for me. I think that um, the I, I will hop over to Leia, and it's not a spoiler to say that Luke's in this because we know Luke's in this. We know. Luke's um, in this. It's not a spoiler to say that Leia's in this because we know Leia's in this. The Leia stuff, and I think we can talk about this, the Leia stuff doesn't work for me. The Leia stuff we know was, because JJ has talked about this, The, the they, they decided that they did not want to have General Leia pass away between films, even though that was an option open to them because Carrie Fisher had passed away. They had intended to use her much more centrally in episode nine. This is going to be Leia's, you know, if, if episode eight was Luke's and episode seven was Han's, this was going to be Leia's movie. And then Carrie Fisher passed away mm-hmm. and they were like, well, what are we going to do now? And one option was to have Leia pass away between movies. They decided that that's not what they wanted to do. Another option was to like CG create her entirely. Um, a la, no, no, thank you. Yeah, that yeah. work either. Yeah. All on the end of mm-hmm. uh, Rogue One. And, and they, you know, they heard the fandoms, uh, outcry about that and they were like okay no so what they did uh, and JJ has given a lot of interviews about this is they had all these extra scenes from The Force Awakens uh, extra footage of Carrie and I believe what they basically did my my uh, understanding of what they did is they took the video of her of her face and maybe like you know neck and chest or whatever and put that into a double so you have like different you have you have different hair that space jewelry that Carrie really loved that was in the last Jedi the space jewelry is there the hair is different the clothing is different but you know she's not in her like general Leia vests and stuff like that um, what, but- what Carrie Fisher uh Described as fancy gas station attendant attire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's in these like rope. This, this was this is what she liked. She she liked that Ryan made Leia a little more glam, and that's like how she is in this movie. So that's mm. honoring Carrie's wish for that. But like basically, they they sort of co- copy pasted some lines that she had had that were cut from The Force Awakens into this. And I respect the effort, and I don't think it works. Because what you get then are these weird, disjointed, rebel-based scenes where someone has to, like, awkwardly bend the the dialogue to set up whatever it was that Carrie said two films ago in a different context so that she can deliver a line like, and I'm going to say a line. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to say a line from The Rise of Scott Crow. She says something like, never underestimate a droid. 
who is she talking about in The Force Awakens when that happens? I don't know. 3PO did something. Maybe R2 having the map. I don't know. There's some reason in The Force Awakens that General Leia Organa decided to say never underestimated droid. But they have to set up another reason for her to say it in this. And my brain got too busy doing all the math, trying to figure out, like how they you know what i mean it's just like and maybe other people can just like enjoy it and turn their brain off and enjoy it but it did not work for me how did all the leia stuff work for you well have you ever written a story like this (laughs) (laughs) like like you you have a topic you have like a couple of quotes i have that kind of fit it you know what i'm talking about (laughs) right i think this is like like as you were describing it i was like oh this reminds me of like there's a topic and you have a couple of quotes that that kind of address it and and then you're going to go gather some string elsewhere but that quote that just that person's voice then you get you get like the famous person's voice in the story okay and then you kind of like you know uh, contort, do a little like uh, belly dance to get your <laughs> your narrative to the point where you can throw that quote in. Um, so I I understand that, but then those are never like you're never like we all know like those stories. Are, okay, yeah, you just you just try to make that quote fit. That's pretty transparent. So I'll say this: like I again agree with everything you said. I might have personally. Uh, if Lucasfilm ever wants to entrust me with one of its $400 million <laughs> movies, uh, I would have made a different choice. Yeah, uh, me too. And um, that choice would have been to have Leia just unfortunately pass away between stories Same. because Same. that's what happened, you know? And that's sometimes you have to deal with real life. And um, that said, as a second choice, uh, I agree it's – it feels a little bit like uh, having a conversation with one of those old soundboards that are online where you have like Homer Simpson or Al Pacino quotes, you know, from famous movies. And you can maybe like uh, prank call somebody and get a conversation going, but it never feels like that person is fully listening to you, you know, yeah. or reacting. Yeah, yeah. They're, even though like there's cutting and different takes, the whole point when you're shooting a movie of having the other actor there, even if they're off camera while you do your close up, is because you're trying to. Make sure that the editor has that human flow that comes between conversation. Even us recording this, you're in San Francisco and I'm in uh, the L.A. area. Like, look, we we step on each other in weird little ways because we don't see each other. Like if we were sitting across from each other, we'd physically be able to respond to clues and cues that uh, I have something to say. I want to jump in here. And then like we know to stop. And like when you have somebody who recorded their performance five years ago. Yeah. And now you're acting opposite it and an editor has to make that work. There is going to feel you're going to feel the seams of it. Now, that said, again, I would have done something different and we can get into that if you want. Like what my idea would have been, but like uh I think if it's this or we have absolutely no Leia Organa presence in the movie, I'm willing to go with it. And I think as a second choice, like they did, they did it pretty well. I'm not appalled by it. I'm not offended by it. It it feels a little distracting, but there's a moment that I really adore in a book called Bloodline by Mm -hmm. Claudia Gray, which I think is one of the best Star Wars novels ever written. And it's a middle-aged Leia story. It's after the fall of the empire and like 40 something Leia is, uh, is like trying to lead the new Republic. And it's like a political story and it's an action story. And, um, 
and they're, and they're and they're talking about like the younger characters are talking about Leia's history and what they've heard, and they, and they they even retcon the slave Leia gold bikini outfit from Return of the Jedi as Hutt's the Hut Slayer outfit, <laughs> like they call her the Hut Slayer to kind of take back a little bit of power surrounding that uh, questionable move. Mm-hmm. But the um, um, one of the characters is talking to her, and it's like, so you confronted like Grand Moff Tarkin. And like she kind of, you know, they're they're trying to get old war stories out of Leia, and Leia's like, yeah, you know, and I I was trying to mess with him a little, like by doing his accent, you know, back oh. at him. <laughs> and I love that because really what happened was Carrie Fisher was in a movie with a a space ape and a farm boy and this <laughs> space pirate and a man in a black mask, and she's acting opposite Peter Cushing. And George Lucas isn't the best director of humans, so she's thinking, I'm, a, I'm an aristocrat, I'm going to put on a British accent for this one scene. And she's also, she talked about this in, the, in her stage show, Wishful Drinking, which you can, I think it's still mm-hmm. on HBO Go, you can go watch it, or HBO, you can go watch it. Um, but how she, she had just been in drama school in England, and she had just been like, that's where she, she had like learned enunciation, and she was just like, she just, Carrie Fisher just makes fun of herself for that, and that just, accent, and but yeah. She's made fun of it and it's been in the show as you say so it's become a thing in Star Wars like you look at that and I think again all of these movies have tons of stuff like this that doesn't exactly work and I think I hate when people say oh you gotta go to the movie and turn off your brain you don't have to turn off your brain and you shouldn't want to do that you should leave your brain on you you need that (laughs) brain's important (laughs) but um, I do think it's okay maybe to dial up the volume on your heart a little bit (laughs) and uh and you feel these movies a little more. And what I love about Bloodline is like 30-some years later, Claudia Gray has said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to put a little patch on it. You still see the patch. <laughs> but um, that's why for one scene in the original Star Wars, Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia has like a British accent, is that she was effing with, with, with Grand Moff Tarkin. And I think this sequence of... Leia in The Rise of Skywalker can be appreciated with one of those patches. And the patch is this, that Leia is tired, is that Leia has, that Leia's generation has passed. And she, even though in real life she died very young, um, that, that, that she has fought all her battles, she has held the galaxy together, she has lost a lot, she has gained a lot, and she's partway gone already not meaning like dementia or dying but like leia is trained in the force in in the rise of skywalker and she is transferring she is like ready to go to the next the next life the next the beyond whatever exists that's unseeable in the star wars galaxy and so there's something ethereal about her that people are talking to her and she doesn't appear to really be listening or reacting i felt like okay maybe it's like leia leia's already kind of in the beyond you know and yet she has more work to do here in the temporal world so in that way there's your little bloodline patch that kind of explains it, but as filmmaking and in our own world, yeah, it doesn't fully work, but I think it's better than not having. 
So I think, okay, so we, we have to, you know, we have to go because this episode also contains discussions of cats and other things. So we, <laughs> we can't cats, just talk cats about... Are bu- <laughs> the cats are banging at the door, man. They got to come in. <laughs> we can't just talk about Star Wars the whole time. But um, I think I think what this illustrates is is exactly what you're saying is like, we you and I agree on a lot of things. It just hits us differently. And part of that might have to do with, you know, your initial tweet out of the film was something about, you know your childhood and what star wars has meant to you sort of nostalgically well and- not not just me but i and I, I i really hate that thing where people are like this is my childhood man like no yeah. your childhood is on the shelf man it's fine your childhood isn't changed i think what i tweeted was we watch star wars and we watch it through the lens of what we remember about Star Wars. For some people, that's being a kid and loving the prequels. For me, it was growing up with the original series. Well, the, and, and, that, I, and that's all I mean. I don't think I don't think you're saying it in any sort of like gatekeepy, toxic fanboy way. But what I just mean is like, you know, you have an emotional connection to this property. Um, you have emotional connections to other properties that I am willing to create a whole backstory about how Leia is tired, whatever that, <laughs> whatever that like <laughs> version is. I've certainly done it for things that I love. And, um, you know, y- so you and I agree on a lot of things, but you, um, have maybe dialed up your heart more on this film than I was able to. Um, and I think that that's okay. Um, let us leave before we go. I, I will say, I don't yeah. think, like I said, I, I don't think that this as a filmmaking technique is, uh, is successful the way they would have hoped. I think if you're doing that, if you're rationalizing something after the fact, it's a flaw, right? It's yeah. a flaw. Um, I guess it's just better than, it's better than nothing. And, you know, and, the, and what I bring to it is like, not just childhood, but like, it's, I think Star Wars is, uh, it's who you share it with. Like I share it with my children now. So right. it means something to me, not just like my childhood, but they're uh, like, it's a bond. It's when I watch Star Wars, I'm thinking all the time of my brother, Greg, because he and I both similar in age, just a few years apart. And like, I think Star Wars, the people who are really into it in a good way, in a positive way, are thinking about their uncle, their aunt, or their grandma, or their mom, or whoever it was that took them to see the movie, who bought them toys, who played with them, who shared the story with them. And I think there's an emotional connection to your family and friends that comes through. It creates a community, for better or worse, sometimes. For some. For, some, for mm-hmm. not all, for some. And, and, well, and that's part of the big debate, right, is that it should be a community that is much more broad and inclusive. And right. I think that's extremely important, too. And in the ways The Rise of Skywalker fails that mission, I think yeah. it should be fully held accountable. So the, the last thing that we do want to say before we hop off is that... Um, even though I did not really enjoy the film and Anthony did enjoy the film and we, we uh, agree on a lot of things. What we don't want is another round of like toxic fandom fighting. Um, so I thought we might close out with like each saying one thing. I mean, you've already said some things that you love, but each saying one thing that's not a spoiler that we like truly loved about this film that we truly want to celebrate just to end on some, some unanimous positivity. So do you want me to go first or do you, you want go to go first? Okay. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, you know, this is a, this is a rerun of something that I already said, but I will say, you know, it should be no, of no surprise to anyone that the, the culmination of this film um, has to do with the characters of Kylo Ren and uh, Ray. And uh, these are two characters that we've seen clash and ally, clash and ally. And um, I just think that 
the initial casting of Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver is some of the smartest things uh, that J.J. Abrams has ever done because I think they're incredible and the emotion that they bring to the end the end of this story um, it really works for me. So I love that. How about you, Anthony? Um, okay, well, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna bring up like specific a plot thing, and my thing is a little cheesy, but at um, uh, I was really happy to be able to sit beside you and Dave Gonzalez, who edits our podcast, and have a new friend to watch this with and talk no, about it with. That's after so nice. <laughs> you know, like even though we don't, we're I don't even think we're so far apart. We're, we're not just that like far apart. Yeah. we're kind of like. On that spectrum, like just on, just slightly on the opposite side, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that may be because I'm being too soft on it. And I think it's really was one of my favorite things was coming out and and having, uh, you know, my new friend here to talk about, and then to talk about it for an hour on a podcast. But we we've, <laughs> we've been now talking about it for like several days. Um, but there's a I will say also like there's a moment in the movie uh, involving Adam Driver's character and somebody else on the uh, ruins of the Death Star that I thought was extremely powerful. And I yeah. make no apologies for welling up uh, and uh, 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 feeling it and feeling touched by it and being happy with it. I thought that was really terrific, and I'm not going to say what it is. So I love that. But I love most of all the friends that I have made over the years <gasps> through this storytelling and, like, going back to when I was five years old and my neighbor friend or a kid I didn't even know, Joey Mitchell, was imitating Yoda in his front yard. And I was like, I was toxic fandom, man. I was like, shut up. You're not Yoda. <laughs> and my dad was like, you're a rude little boy. Like, you need to apologize to him. He likes the same thing you like. And I went back and apologized, said sorry. You know, kids are just weirdly rude to each other all the time. And, like... We played Star Wars for like five years. Like that was our thing. And then um, making new friends through Star Wars across the fandoms and, uh, and, and seeing the way that the expansion of this universe to include more women and, uh, and more people of color. And I know like the, uh, like the LGBTQ representation is still uh, uh, a trail that needs to be cut and, and does not... It, it's one way that the that this franchise has fallen short. Uh, I think they're trying. I think they're doing it in some of the ancillary storytelling, the novels and and the short stories and the animation a little. Uh, so I think like the more friends you can make through Star Wars, the more you can bring uh, a community together, the better. And that's kind of what I really enjoy most about it. But it was fun to watch it with you and Dave. Hey, Dave. <laughs> oh, perfect. All right. Um, so that is The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I'll be curious to see what the larger fandom response is. And maybe you and I can do like a even more in-depth chat on our other podcast, Still Watching, when we talk about the finale of The Mandalorian yeah. next week. That sounds good. like a good plan. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, as we've mentioned, we're going to have a new episode next week, Christmas week, with some interviews with some Oscar contenders. And then we'll have another episode predicting the Golden Globe nominees. So even though a lot of uh, people are going on their holiday breaks, we'll have new episodes for you, which we're proud and excited to bring you. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Uh, Griddlebone69. <laughs> <laughs> This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best rationale for not defending cats goes to Mike Hogan. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.